I have to say, um, I'm always, uh, it's always really cool um, to see how God uh, works uh, throughout the services in the morning. Um, and I tell you what, um, it is a good thing to be reminded on a regular basis of God's goodness and his faithfulness to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, so welcome, everyone joining us here in person, everyone joining us at home. I'm Josh Raines, one of the elders here. Um, I know you're thinking, like, oh man, him again? Get him. Oh. Um, I have a housekeeping item, though, before we get started. Um, this morning when you walked in, you may have missed, there's a couple tables in the back on either side of the sound booth. Uh, there's communion elements back there. If you missed them when you walked in, don't worry, you're probably not the only one who missed them. And if everybody here this morning got them, awesome. So, um, so this morning we are continuing on in our exploration of the Psalms. Last week, Pastor Sean kicked us off uh, talking about Psalms of confidence. And he also kicked us off by talking about uh, what are the Psalms? Psalms were and are a kind of prayer book. Interestingly, and something that I hold dearly, is a lot of these psalms are songs. These psalms would have been sung together in worship at the gathering, at the temple. So he also mentioned that we're not going to go through all of these psalms individually because 150 psalms, some of them really, really, really long, like he said last week, notoriously for us, it would take us decades to actually finally finish the book of Psalms. So what we're doing is we're going through them thematically, themes that should encourage and invite us into praise for our God and for our Savior Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to continue on. And this morning, we're going to talk about Psalms of Remembrance. We're going to spend the next few minutes kind of unpacking some thoughts from one of those psalms in particular, and a couple other places in Scripture as well. And the psalm we're going to look at is actually Psalm 78. So if you have your Bible, your smartphone, turn there. When you turn there, do not be shocked when you see that Psalm 78 is 72 verses long. I promise we are not going to go through all 72 verses, all right? But these psalms of remembrance are psalms that remind us, right? Remind us of what? Remind us of God's faithfulness to us. Remind us of his goodness. And remind us that despite our disbelief, despite how we dig our heels in, that he is good and faithful. And I want to look at this, this psalm, not just in the context of Israel's history, which is what that psalm is largely about, but also in the context of the life we live individually and as a church family after the resurrection of Jesus and in the context that we find ourselves in the Western church in the 21st century. So with that being said, on the screen behind me, you're going to see a number, all right? So that number is the number 5,000, all right? I thought about letting you guys guess what that number might be about. 
Um, but then I thought that might trigger some very hard memories for people of teachers and professors they may have had who played the guess what I'm thinking game uh, in classes. So I'm just going to tell you, all right? This number is actually on the low end of a range, all right? Anywhere from 5,000 to 20,000, but we're going to stick with 5,000. And what this number represents is the average number of brand exposures and advertisements that we encounter on a daily basis, all right? And by brand exposure, what I mean is, you know, turn over your smartphone, right? You see the Apple logo, right? You woke up this morning, maybe your mug had the Starbucks logo. When I was typing up my message, I was looking around, there was a poster board next to me that had the Elmer's cow on it, right? I had a Summa Health stress ball sitting next to me. My mug not only had the Starbucks logo on it, but it also, because it's a You Are Here mug, we got it at Magic Kingdom in Disney World. That's right, Norm. Yeah. So, so double brand exposure right there, right? But I just wanna, I wanna, I want that to sink in, all right? Um, because the next number is a little smaller, right? It's the number 362, all right? And you guessed it, it has to do with advertisement as well. Because this is the number of times on a daily basis that we are actually engaged by an actual advertisement, all right? So 362 times, we run into like that five pages of drug information in a magazine. We see commercials, things like that. And if I went on, this number would continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller until it gets down to the number 12, all right? I know you're thinking, it has nothing to do with the Bible, okay? Don't worry, I don't think marketers had scripture in mind when they came up with this number, but what marketing research shows us is that 12 times a day, we are actually thoughtfully engaged and we pay attention to an advertisement for something, all right? That means 84 times a week, we encounter a truck commercial that has nothing to do with a truck, right? Okay, the cat that acts like a dog, you guys know what I'm talking about, all right? We encounter a fabric softener commercial that shows towels that have probably never been used once, amen, right? You know what I'm talking about. The towels we use on a daily basis, they're ratty and they got strings dangling from them, okay? Those towels in the commercial, we break out like once or twice a year when family comes into town. <laughs> and then we also encounter commercials <laughs> that evidently make it okay to like dance into the lobby of your bank. Have you seen that Huntington Bank commercial? I don't get it. Our kids, I think we've raised them well because they see that commercial and they know how absolutely absurd that thing is. But what's fascinating isn't the product that they're selling, right? Think about those commercials, right? You guys are laughing, right? You're thinking like, oh yeah, I've seen those commercials. What's interesting though is how they make us feel after we see them, right? Like there's commercials, there's ads out there, you get done watching them and you're like choking back tears or you're just in a full out ugly cry. You're like grabbing your phone, you're ready to call your mom, your dad, find your kids and hug them just to tell them you love them. And it's not an accident, it's not an accident that this evokes that type of response in us, right? Because these things hit us at a very gut level. They hit us in a place and they trigger something from a place that oftentimes we are completely unaware of. And what they do is they paint a story for us. 
They paint a story about what the good life might look like. They hit us and they speak to our deepest longings, desires, and loves. And you know what? This is just stuff, right? This is just products and services. When I was prepping for my message, I came across uh, this quote from a guy named David Rose. Most of you have never heard of who David Rose is, and I certainly had never heard of who David Rose was either. But David Rose is the director of the MIT Media Lab, like MIT, the place where really, really smart people go and come from, right? He's an entrepreneur. He's got patents on like lots of things that we use, like things that you use every day that you don't even know he's the guy who helped develop them. But he wrote a book called Enchanted Objects, Human Design, Human Desire, and the Internet of Things. And this is what he says in this book, because he's talking about this thing called the ladder of enchantment, right? How do you get people to buy in to not just getting a product, but to the story around that product? In the final rung of this ladder, he says, the final step of the ladder of enchantment is creating or adding to a story that will enchant the user. Why a story? Because we all think of our lives as stories, each with a main character, us, theme and plot, Interesting so far, but yet unfinished. We also love to hear stories about others and even things. Stories hook into our curiosity. What happens next? Into our emotions. What would I do in that situation? Stories have the unique power to engage, and if engage enough to trigger empathy, enchant. Designers having tapped the potential of personalizing, socializing and gamifying can work to embed a drama in our heads. They can involve us in a story so the narrative gains a purchase on both our minds and our hearts. It becomes a part of our heritage, our folklore, our mythology. We can feel as if we are part of the action, even a central character in the tale. Just think about that for a second, right? The power of story, right? The power of being reminded. What David Rose understands, along with many of the influencers, culture shapers, screenwriters, politicians, cable news networks, tech companies, is that as human beings created by our Father, we are storied creatures. Right? We want to imagine, right? And I think we've all had these moments. We want to imagine that we make logical decisions and choices. This is a thought that was born out of the Enlightenment, right? Who here has ever heard the name Rene Descartes? Excellent. Some people. Rene Descartes was a 17th century Enlightenment philosopher. And in the midst of the Enlightenment, he, uh, uh, there's a book. You guys can go read it. Um, I, took, I read it in philosophy. I can't say that I understand it wholeheartedly. But in the book, he declared, I think, therefore I am. But what is recognized by this previous quote is that it is not, that we are not thinking beings, right? We're not giant brains on a stick, right? There is something that drives us that's far more powerful 
We have to recognize that what really drives us is actually loves and longings and desires. In fact, that quote from Descartes is probably better restated as, I love, therefore I am. I desire, therefore I am. And what's interesting is that even the apostle Paul understood this centuries before Descartes ever declared that, in centuries before now neuroscience is starting to catch up with the fact that we make decisions before they're even conscious to us. Paul wrote to the Philippian church that this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Love. He doesn't start with, I hope that you do more Bible studies and memorize more verses of scripture. He says, I hope your love may abound more and more so that. There's another guy, James K.A. Smith or Jamie Smith. He's one of my favorite authors. He's a philosopher uh, and a professor of philosophy at Calvin University. And he wrote this great book called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And in that, he states this. He says, what if the center and seat of the human person is not found in the heady regions of the intellect, but in the gut level regions of the heart? Right? See, story taps into that. Stories enchant our imagination. Story is how we relate to the world around us, to each other, and to our God. Stories can be formative. Stories can also be deformative. The question that each of us should ask on a daily basis is this. What story do I believe in? About myself, my neighbor, the world around me, and about our God. With that, I want us to look at Psalm 78 now. Setting that up, I want us to dive in to the first part of this psalm, and I want us to stand together and read Psalm 78. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. Creed statues for Jacob, established the law in Israel, which he commanded ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children. Let's pray real quick. Lord, we are in your presence. We are here with open hearts, 
and open ears. Help remind us, help us to remember that it is your story that we belong to. In Christ Jesus, amen. You guys can be seated. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of summarize the next 64 verses, not in rhyme format, not even in limerick, not even as a sea shanty, although I did try. So Psalm 78 goes on to talk about how some forgot what the Lord had done, how he rescued them from Egypt, how he parted the waters, guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, how he provided for Israel in the midst of a barren and dry desert by giving them water when they were thirsty. And that even after the people questioned God and questioned Moses and were disbelieving, God still provided for them when they were hungry, provided, as the psalmist said, grains of the heavens and rained meat down on them like dust. That is a carnivore's dream. But continually, Israel would flatter God with their mouths, but their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. It says that he was merciful, though. He forgave their iniquities. Time and time again, he restrained his anger. Amen. True to who he told Moses he was. The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and covenant faithfulness. Amen. And even after this, even after God showing his graciousness to him, they still grieved him, not remembering the power, what they saw the day that they were released and redeemed from their oppressor Egypt. The psalmist goes on to recount the plagues on Egypt, sings about how, how awful they were, all of them, in very poetic detail. In fact, in one verse, he says, he unleashed against them his hot anger, his wrath, indignation, and hostility, a band of destroying angels. Against Egypt, he prepared a path for his anger, did not spare them from death, but gave them over to the plague. He talks about how the Lord brought his people like a flock, leading them like sheep through the wilderness, bringing them to the land that he had promised to their forefathers, to their ancestors, driving out the nations before them and settling them. But then once again, the psalmist says, Israel was disloyal and faithless, arousing his jealousy with their idols. They are reminded that the Lord then gave Israel over to their idolatry and their sin, and the Lord rejected them completely. His presence leaves the tabernacle, and he gives his people over to the sword of enemy nations. The psalmist even reminds, reminds Israel that, and us, that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of His presence, was even allowed to fall into the hands of enemy nations. But the psalmist doesn't end there. It doesn't end on a bad note. 
He goes on to say at the end, and the Lord awoke from as a sleep as a warrior wakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Skipping down a couple of verses, he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. The first point that I want to call our attention to this morning is that God, through the psalmist, understands the formative power and wisdom of remembering and being reminded through story. In fact, within the first eight verses, right? Because Psalm 78 tells the story of Israel's history. It recounts it. It says, remember this. Remember what happened. Even though you have been even though in the past you've responded with disbelief, with idolatry, with faithlessness, still I remain loyal and faithful. But within the first eight verses, if you're paying attention, this psalm excites the imagination, or at least it should. Many people hearing this would understand that that what the psalmist is calling to mind is actually something that Moses, generations previous, had told the nation of Israel, had reminded them. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. We're going to read down through this. Verse 4 starts with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I'm going to pause there for a second. You might be thinking to yourself, I've heard this before, right? This is a very famous prayer. In the history of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, this is the Shema. This is something that is recited every day. It goes on to say, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, the context of what the psalmist is referring to in Psalm 78, in talking about telling the next generation teaching these things, making sure that this story doesn't get forgotten and gets passed on, is so that the next generation, so that the nation would remember the Lord, that your children would put their trust in the Lord, that they wouldn't become, as the psalmist says, a stubborn generation. 
And that leads to the second thing that I want to call out. Because if you're paying attention, there's something going on, not only in the psalm, but also in Moses' words to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, and that's this. The biblical authors and the psalmists understand that there are rival stories and rival narratives that compete for our loves and our longings and our desires. God in his mercy, speaking through the psalmist, has shown us, has instructed us and given us a way, has given us a counter-narrative. They understand that these rival stories can be deformative and destructive. Amen? Moses says, you will end up in a land that has houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, all good things that you will enjoy, but there will be a temptation to forget me. This is very true of Israel's history. Over and over again, they forgot the Lord. They turned to idols, but God in his goodness and faithfulness responded. These stories that are destructive, these stories that are deformative, deformative, seek to rob us of what it means to be humans fully alive. Let me give you an example from our current context of what I'm talking about in terms of rival stories. In 2018, there's an organization called um, More in Common. And what More in Common did, these are sociologists, a lot of them, what they did was they set out to try to find out what is it that drives polarization and tribalism in our country in the 21st century. And they reported it in this study that came out, a landmark study called Hidden Tribes, a study of America's polarized landscape. And they surveyed thousands of Americans on the issues that we face every day, things like immigration and racial justice and sex, gender and morality and terrorism. And it's interesting because what they found was that 75% of Americans hold some dissimilar views on these things, are varied in how they view about, or, or, or what their views are on these issues. However, the one striking thing that they found of these 75% of people is that they agreed that their differences weren't so great that they couldn't work together. They termed this group the exhausted majority. Okay, Josh, so what did they find out about division? Why are we so divided? Well, it's interesting. Because that's because of another smaller group, actually two groups, that make up about 14% of our country, that they called extreme wings. On the left, we have political activists, or I'm sorry, progressive activists. And on the right, we have devoted conservatives. And what's interesting about these two groups is that they are fiercely unified in their thinking about the issues that we face in America, and they hold a deep-seated trust of anyone who is outside of their tribe. They are also the most divisive and the most likely to use very negative language about people who hold opposing viewpoints. And what's really interesting, what's really striking 
is that when people talk about how we view things in this country, how we tell stories about how America is so divided, about how Americans hate each other, they're actually often referring to the attitudes, opinions, and behaviors of these two very small groups, not the majority of Americans in this country. The story they tell is the loudest. It's a deformative story. It doesn't represent what's really going on. But it gets airtime. It makes for great social media content. It gets retweeted. People click like or dislike. And regardless of how outlandish, of how extreme, regardless of the collateral damage, regardless of who gets hurt, these voices, these rival stories and narratives that are so deformative and destructive have actually started to shape what culture looks like for us here. So look at Deuteronomy again. Think about Psalm 78. Think about singing a reminder of God's faithfulness. Think about what Moses says to the nation of Israel as they're standing on the banks of the Jordan ready to cross into the promised land. He's telling them, you need to be reminded all of the time. These things should be on your hearts. You should impress them on your children. Write them on the gates, on your doorposts. Talk about them when you're coming and going. He's equipping them for generations to come with something that is going to counteract rival stories. He knows, again, God in his mercy knows that these are things we need to keep from becoming a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts are not loyal to God. What Moses is giving them if you will allow me to say this word, he's giving them liturgies. He's giving them practices, practices that will be formative. And that's where I want to land the plane. I'm going to land the plane. I want to call out this last point. And it's that what we need to understand is that what it takes to guard our hearts against these rival stories is rehearsing and practicing the story to which we actually belong. You see, our hearts are equal parts homing beacon and propulsion drive. We are driven towards some kind of end, right? The Greek word for that is telos. There is something that we are headed towards. And what defines what that is, is what you believe about the story you belong to. For those of us who follow Jesus, the end is Christ. Smith says in his book as well that Christ is the very embodiment of what we're made for, of the end to which we are called. This takes practice. This takes the ability to regularly put on what Paul tells the, Colossians, the Colossian church, put on love. He exhorts the church in Rome to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I was reminded that uh, small piece from Colossians when my wife and I uh, were leading our community group, we actually um, read through Paul's letter to the Colossian church and uh, we were talking about what it means to put on love regularly. And we were talking and just kind of, you know, processing through this and just out of my mouth came the phrase, it's like spiritual underwear, right? Love is the thing, or underwear, it's the thing you really don't ever want to leave home without, right? It's the same with love. Love is the thing that you do not want to encounter this world, encounter these stories without. Like Moses instructed the Israelites to make sure that they did what is necessary to always be reminded of God's commands, of his wisdom, we too should be regularly immersed in the drama of God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We do this through a number of ways. We do this through prayer. We do this through the reading of the word, through confession, community, through fasting. We are invited into the story over and over again. A story that restores us and restores us as we rehearse this gospel drama, as we are reminded over and over again of God's goodness and faithfulness, giving us a glimpse of what it truly means to experience the good life in Christ, helping us to really understand or begin to understand and answer the question, what story do I believe? This morning, I want us to close by standing together. You have your communion elements. We're going to close this morning by doing something that has been a practice in the church, probably one of the oldest practices in the church. We are doing this together as a family, side by side, rehearsing the story of our redemption. Check, check. Unified in spirit, bound together by our King, Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood. Paul wrote this in his first correspondence with the Corinthian church. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. After the meal was finished, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood. This cup is the new covenant 
that is poured out for you. We drink together. We rehearse the story. Practices that remind us constantly of the story that we belong to. This morning, taking communion together, again, being reminded of his broken body, his shed blood that has redeemed every single one of us. Let's pray. Father, you have made us in fearful and wondrous ways. Father, you know that our hearts are easily pulled, easily swayed, It's so easy for our focus and for our attention to be taken away from you, the end to which we are called. Pulled away from you, Lord Jesus, the realization of what it means to be truly human. But you have given us a way, you have equipped us the ability to call to mind, the ability to remember helps redirect our hearts, helps redirect our loves, our longings, and our desires for the only one who is able to truly fulfill what those are. Help us to be reminded this week, Lord, over and over again, always asking ourselves, what story do I believe? To whom do I belong? And help us this morning as we go out to not just see this moment as eating a wafer or drinking from a cup, but rehearsing that which you have done for us, being reminded. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.